Our podcast is about a story about a town, a small town, and the people who live in the town. From a distance, it presents itself like so many other fandom podcasts all over the internet. Nerdy, white, male. Get closer though, and you start to see the silliness underneath. The name of our podcast is Riverdews and River Don'ts. Welcome to Riverdews and River Don'ts episode one. I am Rob. And I am Quinn. And I don't know why we're doing this, but here we go. So I should probably explain why our name is River Do's and River Don'ts. Or maybe maybe Quinn should. Maybe maybe Quinn should, because he is the one who came up with this monstrosity of a name. Yeah. I guess it's called River Do's and River Don'ts because I'm bad at naming things, but also I'm bad at naming things in a way that is a little bit too appealing to pass up. Also, it relates certainly what happened. to the format of the show that we've decided on, where we're going to break this show down in relatively bite-sized chunks, episode by episode, and we're going to do a really quick recap of the episode. We're going to talk about our favorite thing in the episode. We're going to talk about our least favorite thing in the episode. And then we're going to talk about the most absolutely mind-blowingly, head-scratchingly bizarre or confusing thing that we found in the episode. And we're each going to be presenting those from our own perspective. So that gives you your river do's, which are the good things, the river don'ts, which are the bad things. And that stuff and that's a bit been of boozling. mystery to keep you wanting more. <laughs> exactly. So the first episode of Riverdale, I have to admit, when I looked at it on Netflix, it did that thing where it just automatically starts playing something when you idle too long on a title on Netflix. At least on my TV, it does that. Yeah. And it played the very beginning of the episode. It just started autoplaying the episode. But the episode begins so much like a promo, like a TV spot for the show that I thought it was playing a commercial for Riverdale until it just kept going and kept going. Yeah. And I realized, oh, this is the show. Yeah, no, we're doing this. This is where we are now. (laughs) So yes, that opening Jughead narration and sort of the quick cuts between large sweeping shots and the music all just gave me such a feeling of like, oh, this is the this is the commercial that auto plays if you are looking at it. But no, <laughs> that's how we start. It's pretty great. It is. It is. From there, there's a lot that happens in this episode. There's a lot that needs to get laid out on the table for us to understand what's going on here and how this story works. So why don't we break that down a little bit? We start, of course, with the I mean, this is we're going in cold. I I have not seen this whole season of TV yet, but I'm assuming we go in with the season arc, which is the murder of Jason Blossom. And, you know, okay, here we've got this small town, and of course we've got this lurid murder, and no doubt secrets within lies within secrets. We gather our cast, essentially, um, where we've got this group of three classic Archie Comics characters with their surprisingly replete with issues parents oh yeah chock full of issues <laughs> uh, their parents n- none of them have i mean the, i guess the closest to normal parents would be archie's dad uh fred andrews who clearly has been through some shit oh yeah but at least seems like kind of a normal person ish which is more than can be said for the other parents 
That is true. He's a uh, passable simulacrum of an adult human being. Which in Riverdale, as far as I can tell, this far into the show, is an accomplishment. Is something that should probably be celebrated. <laughs> but yeah. We have Betty and her monstrous, vicarity-addicted control freak mom. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Played by Maginamic, who I love. <laughs> And it feels very weird to see her not being Shelly and instead being just awful and the worst. <laughs> yes. Her parents are something else, for sure. Betty's got problems with some uh, some stuff that happened between Jason and her sister, so that's a real interesting hook-in we get here. Yeah, that's something we tease out over a while, it seems. Yeah, absolutely. Then we have Veronica, who's just moved into town after... A large falling out uh, with her father being arrested. Seems like things between her mother and her father are really, really tense. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what his name is? I can't remember. I want to say it was Ira or Hiram or one of I those. I think it was Hiram. It was Hiram. Okay. Hiram. Uh, but obviously the way that the show presents it, he may as well have been named like Enron Lodge. He's he's like the stereotypical, like, oh, I just like ripped everybody off with my high-powered financial yes, um, uh, chicanery. Yes, he is basically E.M. Bezelment. <laughs> and her mother, who I think is named Hermione. Yep, she, she is. That shows how old these comics are, right? Because you've got... I mean, their, their their butler is named Smithers, for God's sake. I know. Uh, or the doorman at the hotel or what, or, or whoever that was. There are these names that, like, you don't use now because they, I mean... They have connotations outside. Yeah. But Veronica presents her arc as sort of an attempted redemption and reinvention of herself. She is someone who used to be a quote-unquote bad girl who is trying to do better now. And she's incredibly self-aware about that. Incredibly self-aware about that. Yeah, we'll get to that when we talk about our best, worst, and most perplexing moments, actually. Perfect. And of course, a vaguely antagonistic character is Cheryl Blossom, who is a very explicit foil to Veronica, uh, currently doing what Veronica is trying to get over. Yep. Uh, in many ways. Also rounding out the hair color trifecta amongst the main women in the cast here oh hey you're right you're absolutely right is there is there no blonde boy though because obviously we've got archie and jughead i can't think of a blonde boy off the top of my head not not in the initial movements of the story anyway all right network get on that i know um, obviously that's a it's a glaring a fault boy. In, <laughs> in the structure of the show oh, we, oh goodness yeah weeaboo agrees uh pretty blonde boys more of them please so now that all of our players have taken the stage, we immediately segue off of the small town murder mystery into hardcore love triangle zone. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like someone just took a, a pool ball racker and just smushed those kids in there. I'm sure there's a technical <laughs> term for that, but it escapes me at the moment. So it's a pool ball racker. Don't at me. <laughs> yeah, from the get-go, this love triangle goes hard. There's a lot of tension that they're building between Betty and Archie and Veronica and Archie. I almost said Betty and Veronica because, of course, I... I mean, if that doesn't happen later, I'll be I, they heavily disappointed. Exactly. And since we're doing a quick recap here, I think that it's safe to say that this culminates 
when, after explicitly encouraging Betty to make a move on Archie during Seven Minutes in Heaven, who kisses Archie, uh, but Veronica, right after... Scandalous. I was live-tweeting this, and right after, I complimented her on being a grade-A wingman. She was wingmanning... To be fair, she did... She put in an effort. She was doing so good. But I guess she flew too close into the sun and (laughs) crash-landed... On Archie Andrews' lips. Crash-landed right on those lips, yep. So, of course, Betty and Archie are driven apart, and that's more or less the arc of the episode. The movement on the ostensible season plot really is in the last just couple of minutes. Yeah. Um, You get the delightful Kevin scoring himself some allegedly heavy-duty D in the form of Moose, the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> kind of on the nose named Moose from the football team, who's totally not gay, but would like to do everything but kiss. Classic. I was I was so happy for him. I was like, you know what, Kevin, you you get it. <laughs> like I was so happy for him. And then of course we get Jason the, Blossom's the ultimate dead body. Impressive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's uh hard to soldier through that. And of course he's been shot. It is not as his sister said, and we deepen the mystery uh, to move on into, but not before sort of tying uh, up or putting a button on the noir-inflected narration that we started the episode with. Who was doing that? Oh, that was Jughead Jones. why, Why, that was, in fact, our buddy JJ, and he's at Pop's Diner, or I should say Pop's Chocolate Shop, right? Like, that's the real name. Yes. Writing a novel. Yes. He's writing a novel about the events of the summer and the murder, murder, disappearance. I mean, I guess his book's about to change a little bit, but. Yeah, it's going to undergo some pretty heavy revisions. About the whole Jason Blossom thing. And something has come between him and his erstwhile best friend, Archie. Something indeed. I mean, that's like it. There's not much of a sense of resolution in the first episode, really. No, there's not. They did manage to bookend it with that noir narration, which I was starting to wonder where it had gone, and they did bring it home, so I appreciated that. I had a sense of relief, honestly, when that happened. I didn't expect them. I thought they were just like, here, we'll get people's attention in like the most heavy-handed way possible. Right, yeah. Outside of like a straight-up you know, X-Files CSI cold open where we follow a character for two minutes and they get murdered. Yeah, I thought that um, they were going to to drop that and just never pick it back up. So props to them for creating that tight loop. And we more or less get the plates spinning and move all the pieces out onto the board. And essentially with that much logistical work to do, one episode only has time to do that logistics and choose either develop the plot or have a bunch of you know, hot teen eye-fucking and sexual tension. And obviously they made the priority choice in the first episode of Riverdale. Uh-huh. Speaking of priorities, let's get talking about those bests. Let's do it. Do you want me to go first? I can... I'm happy to have you go first. As snarky as I have been and will continue to be about this show there are parts of it that i legitimately enjoy an honorable mention is just how beautifully photographed it all is like it's teen trash but it is like the prettiest teen trash like they've got some serious (laughs) professionals producing this thing oh yeah the the color schemes are great it doesn't get all bleached out in the the oranges and blues there's a lot of fun play that they do with like neon colors and stuff uh 
Yeah, and I'm they've appreciative. got a great a great DP, like picking angles and camera movements and stuff. Like it's so much less boring in its cinematography than it could easily get away with being. It's easy watching for sure. It it goes down smooth. Indeed. But actually, in terms of the first episode, my sincere best part was the frankly fucking heartbreaking talk that Archie's dad gives him out on the porch when he finds out that he's lying to him about uh, doing football practice and that's why he can't work for him. It started out with, I was like, oh God, this guy just doesn't understand his son and he just wants him to work for him and thinks he knows what's best for his future and isn't like interested in what he really likes. And like, I was ready to be super annoyed. Yeah, he looked With Fred Andrews. Like, uh, it was prickly. looking real bad. And then he gets in close and has this line of, look, these decisions that you're making have consequences and those become who you are and who you're going to be. Have enough confidence that you don't have to lie about it, whatever you choose. And then he just kind of almost cries and walks away. Yeah, you can see that there's a lot of pain in Fred there. I appreciated that a lot. I'm also personally a sucker for coming of age narratives and that hits on a lot of those coming-of-age themes pretty much directly on the head. Oh, yeah. And, like, the idea of a father and his son struggling with their relationship and the dad really trying is kind of a kind of a critical hit to me. Uh, I'm, I'm very vulnerable to that. Yeah. And uh, I think they did a good job with that. And I was like, oh, my God, I just went from wanting to punch this dude to wanting to hug him, mm -hmm. like, so fast. Like, my head is spinning. Yeah. Uh, that was my favorite single moment in the episode, for sure. Perfect. So I will also start with an honorable mention. And that is, quite frankly, the fact that when Veronica walks into Pop's Chocolate Shop, she is dressed head to toe, <laughs> toe to tip, like a goddamn witch. She looks like, like she's in there to cast some fucking sorcery. And I love like, it. Like little witch riding hood. Like the fucking and flaps amazing. <laughs> on her coat are incredible. And that was the moment that I knew that I was pretty hard on Veronica's side. I would also argue that that's the moment that we see it felt like a slightly gritty mystery teen show until that moment for me. And then I realized just how over the top we are casually willing to go with oh. the show. To say nothing of the fucking slow motion and lens flares. Yeah, they go <laughs> right over the top, and no one says anything directly about it. It's just taken for given, and I love that. It is fabulous. Because it also hits on some of those peak noir themes of, like, oh, here's the, like, alluring, dangerous dame. But she's dressed... Like I would expect a modern-day Sabrina the Teenage Witch to be dressed. Yes, yes, she is in cartoon clothes, and everyone is fine with it. It was very good, but I'm going to give my best point of the episode to the introduction of Josie and the Pussycats. That's I've heard. fair. They're, they're amazing. They're very good. I personally have a soft spot for Josie and the Pussycats, not from watching the cartoon when I was young, but because I grew up in the age... Of the Josie and the Pussycats movie. Oh, man. So I've always got this kind of soft spot for Josie and the Pussycats. I'm scared to go back and rewatch that movie, to be perfectly honest, because I'm pretty sure that it wasn't very good. Uh -huh. But I do have fond memories of it. 
But the way that they have framed Josie and the Pussycats here as a very strongly poised, possessed of personality power group of young African-American women, I I was really there for that. I thought that that was really, really cool. And I am here for those characters. They seem like they have a lot of interesting stuff going on and they just ooze style and personality. Yeah, and casting an eye forward, this show is a good show to watch if you like the idea of Josie and the Pussycats being great. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I do also like the fact that despite the fact that they wear cat ears, which is a strange fashion choice that they do pull attention to, they then explicitly tell you not to look at them. These ears are for us. <laughs> yes. Fuck, Fuck you. Yes. Don't look at them. So that's my best. Yeah, it's it's real good. I guess it's time for worst, which is which is sad. Do you want to do like draft order? Do you want to go next and then we go back or do we just do a strict back and forth? Yeah, thing? let's let's do this draft order. Also, have you read the comics like the Archie comics? I'm vaguely familiar with them, but not really. Fuck. Okay, we desperately need a third host who actually knows anything. I know someone. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, I know someone too. Maybe. <laughs> but staring um, wistfully into the distance. Yeah, so let's let's hear about your worst. I was surprised by the lack of utterly terrible things in this episode because the cheese and trash was so campy and self-aware and it was wallowing joyously in it more than it was, at least to my eye, accidentally falling into bad tropes for the most part. So you can go ahead and put this on any sort of advertisal materials if you need them the cw but this show does exquisitely dance upon the line between pain and pleasure and they never cross over <laughs> they never hit that pain point too bad oh yeah it's all it's it's constantly almost awful <laughs> but it's like but it's 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 like on a high ledge right like it's good and it's enjoyable and if it went a millimeter over, it would go way down into Bad Town. Yeah, exactly. It's like a tightrope walk. But the worst element of this to me, and this is something that just for personal reasons, has always been something that I've never been able to, like, handle in fiction, was the incredibly inappropriate student-teacher relationship between Archie and Miss Grundy. Yeah. Like, Archie just turned 15. Oh, is he really that yeah, young? Yeah, he's explicitly 15. Oh, oh Jesus Christ. He's got I keep a rockin' pair I of keep abs. For, yeah, you know, like a, a pair. <laughs> Way more than that. Well, no, it's three I, on I one forget. side and three on the other. That makes a pair. Oh, okay, sure, 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 sure. Uh, yeah, I, it's easy to forget he's supposed to be 15 because uh, KJ Appa is fucking hot. Yeah, and also, like, old. This is a show where... Definitely no one here is under the age of, like, 23, 24. I can't imagine. I think he's actually 20. Really? Yeah. That's crazy to me. Like, I feel slightly uncomfortable having said what I said about him just looking up his actual age, but goddammit, five years earlier, and someone explicitly older than me? Ew. Yeah. Ew. Yeah. Position of power, teacher. That's gross. That's what gets me. It's the power thing. Um, It's really gross. It's predatory. And I understand that it's something that they do to stage the drama, and it creates interesting tension and adds to the mystery elements, but it's something that I personally find very, very squicky. Yeah, squicky is a good one. And so, that's my low point. Yeah. Um, 
Mine piggybacks right off of that. It's very related. I think that I'm maybe a little more okay than you with the use of that horrible, indefensible act as part of drama. However, we really blur the line on this issue with having Archie, our main protagonist, ostensibly, yeah, go back to this teacher who at least has realized that what she did was heinous and unforgivable and is trying to stay the hell away from him yeah and and not give him music lessons because what an amazingly bad idea right and i mean is there any better or i mean any less like fucking obvious cover lie for straight fucking than music lessons (laughs) yeah i if there is we'll have to wait for another episode to teach us what that would be but archie fucking blackmails her into doing one-on-one music lessons with him and she says yes oh god uh like he more or less just directly hangs it over her that like well we heard a gunshot the day that (laughs) that jason went missing and i'm gonna tell people about it unless you get do private music lessons with me unless you want to get into a one-on-one private situation with me on the reg and do emotionally charged things. Right. And so I feel like that move from Archie is, I mean, he's a minor, so he's not like, he is a victim, but he is throwing himself back into this situation in a manipulative and calculated and shitty way. It is skeezy And then she agrees to it. Right. No, that's awful. It's awful. I was I was just shocked at how gross that was. Like we managed to take this really charged and unpleasant story element and make both the victim and the predator in the situation more gross and less likable. Somehow, yeah. So that is absolutely my least favorite, which is fits in with yours quite well. So now we move into probably what's going to be the most fun part, I think. Oh, uh, which is yes. talking, <laughs> which is talking about perplexing, inexplicable things that you had to like rewind to make sure that you didn't have a stroke while you were watching. Which this show seems full of because it loves just clashing tones as hard and as weirdly as possible. It seems uh-huh. it's like contrapasso, it but not- bad. <laughs> My most perplexing bit for this, the first episode of Riverdale, no doubt, is the Aaron Sorkin-style walk-and-talk between Betty and Veronica, where Veronica, in excruciating detail, outlines not how she feels or what's going on with her in vague terms, but explicitly the plot mechanics of her character arc in the TV show Riverdale. Yeah, she really, really does. And and she goes on and on about exactly what her internal conflict is going to be and what she suspects her external conflict is going to be. And then just sort of gives this expecting look to Betty, who takes a beat and then explains her whole internal conflict about her sister. And... This is not even connected by topic to what Veronica was talking about. It is connected only by plot function. I was <laughs> I was amazed. 
this scene feels like it's I know I know it's not this long, but it feels like it's just five minutes of like these characters pitching their own stories to each other like they're in fucking writer's room. A little bit, yeah. And there's that like level of confidence in their own self-awareness that first of all, no 15-year-old is possessed of. <laughs> like that's the the actual opposite of being a teenager. Yeah, it was just like incredibly audacious and that look where it is communicated okay my arc is on the table now it's your turn is exquisite yes and not to spoil further episodes but we will return to this theme in my (laughs) in my enumeration of the strange happenings on the riverdale tv show oh boy okay so mine is Something that I had to actually stop when I was watching this episode and, like, confirm that this was actually happening. Because they have their homecoming dance in the first episode, which, first of all, it's really early in the school year. And by my recollection, homecoming's usually in, like, October or whatever, but I'm not worried about those mechanics. I'm coasting here on the sheer style of the show. It's a narrative contrivance. However, it's incredibly fucked up. For you to take a bunch of teenagers who are nervous and, like, getting dates and going to this dance, probably very much feeling a lot of confused emotions, especially in light of the fact that just a few weeks prior, one of their classmates died mm-hmm. and plaster his fucking portrait all over this dance. I guess it is one way to ensure that you don't have too many horny teens because they have to leave room <laughs> for Jason. Oh, God. But it's incredibly cruel. Like, students could be, honest to God, traumatized by what happened to one of their fellow students. A well-loved student, mind you. Yeah. I've been at a school where a well-loved member of the student body suddenly died. As have I, yeah. And it was devastating. You certainly don't want to look at, this is an event that's going to set the tone for the whole year. Let's do it for Jason. Look at Jason. You're never going to see him again. You're never going to hear his voice again. You're never going to see him touch the pigskin again. Leave room for Jason, please, so that you don't touch your dance partner with your boner. (laughs) Yeah, that is, honestly, I will admit to not having picked up on that my time through the episode. But you're right. That is (laughs) inexplicable. Who, what committee was like, yep, that's it. That's our homecoming theme. Dead kid. So, either... (laughs) Cheryl had a hand in it because, of course, or my personal pet theory is that Principal Weatherby's a sick fucker. Well, we do know from TV that principals are usually um, either 100% paragons of good or are actually just evil. Yeah, absolutely. Like, they're not, they're not allowed to be humans, right? Like, No, 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 no. They are embodiments of, one might say, principals. Oh, jeez. I walked right into that. I think that'll do it for us this week. <laughs> yeah, I just piggybacking off of your perplexing thing. Um, I do need to point out that not only is his dead face, well, not they didn't take pictures of his corpse. That'd be even worse. But not only is Jason's face plastered all over everything at this dance, Cheryl gets up and like really pours it on well and drives this point home okay and it feels like yeah we're remembering my brother and whatever but like it felt also like commissioner gordon getting up and saying that batman has finally gone too far and he must be brought to justice well and it's it was it was an odd it was an odd scene 
And she's like, she's a popular kid. But if I remember correctly, they started that speech. She started that homecoming queen speech by saying, they gave this to me because I have a dead brother. I would have won the popular vote, but I didn't need it because Jason is dead. Please leave room for him while you dance. (laughs) Oh, man. This show is so weird. (laughs) It is hog wild. It is bananas. Yes. Uh, One last little shout out. This episode was directed by Lee Toland Krieger and written by Roberto Aguirre Sacasa. I probably butchered that. Aguirre Sacasa. These folks uh, directed and wrote the first two episodes. Mm -hmm. And Krieger, in fact, uh, directs the third episode as well. Which probably explains why they all look so great. Indeed. All right. I think uh, I think that'll about do us for this week. So those have been your Riverdews and Riverdotes for the first episode of Riverdale Season 1. We will be back at some other time with the second episode. 